Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Investing with IBD, sponsored by MarketSmith. Today is September 2nd, 2020. I'm your host, Arusha Pires, and today we have Steve Birch back on the show. Steve is the CEO of O'Neill Global Advisors and also the CEO of William O'Neill and Company. Thanks for being here, Steve. Thanks, Arusha. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about the current markets. We will go over some of our new O'Neill quantitative strategies, and then we will end the episode with a few current ideas. Uh, so, Steve, let's get this episode started by going into your background. You've been with the company now, the O'Neill organization, for over 20 years. Why don't you uh, just briefly walk us through uh, how you got into investing and then how you ended up as CEO of O'Neill Global Advisors? Great. Thanks, Arisha. Well, I'll, I'll start by giving you a disclaimer. If I talk about any stocks today, it's possible that I do own those, that OGA owns them. William O'Neill may own those, just full disclaimer. Um, and we will go over some later today. And I, I uh, want you to know that. So yeah, um, to your audience, um, I've been on this podcast before with Scott O'Neill. Um, I'll give you a little background on myself so we have some context of where I'm coming from and, and my work with the O'Neill organization. Um, I've been investing for over 40 years. I started out as an analyst in 1995 for Bill O'Neill. Um, prior to that, I worked as a fundamental commodities analyst doing a lot of uh, modeling on, you know, pork bellies, uh, cattle, corn crop, uh, you know, uh, orange acreage. Um, when I moved to Los Angeles, there was an ad in the LA Times, and uh, they were looking for a fundamental research analyst to write up growth stocks for Bill. So I replied to that ad. Um, I'd also had some experience as a technical stock uh, trader working on Wall Street prior to doing the commodity work. So when I came to O'Neill, I was really intrigued that Bill used both technicals and fundamentals, and he used them to really, you know, find these great growth names. So it really uh, resonated with me. Um, in 2007, uh, and I worked as a PM, I was an analyst first, and I'd say about two years in, uh, Bill gave me a sleeve of capital to manage. Uh, so I experienced the 98, 99 market. Um, I experienced the bear market after that. Um, some of the big winners that we bought, um, you know, Qualcomm, AOL, um, uh, Yahoo in, in 99, uh, Schwab, um, eBay, Apple, uh, you know, Facebook, Google, Netflix, all these, right? These, yep, these yep. are all, I've watched us own those, trade those, I've traded them. Um, but in 2007, you know, Bill asked me to be the uh, president of William O'Neill, which was our legacy company. And we had a lot of great products there that needed to be modernized. Uh, and one of the first projects, you'll find this interesting, Arusha, the, the first project that I was involved in was to redesign a product called Daily Graphs. No. So I'm going to give you a trivia question. Uh-oh. Okay. What, what do these words all have in common with MarketSmith? Captro, Capvia, Market Trove, and Spindle. Any idea what those, how they're related to the word MarketSmith? I, the, the, the thing that comes to mind is a kind of a treasure trove of information or stock information. Okay, yeah, that, that, yeah. that's true about market trove, yeah. yeah. Well, it's an interesting little backstory. When we, when we took that product, Bill had designed daily graphs mm -hmm. in the 1970s, and he de designed it specifically for retail customers. Right. And 
it was run on a mainframe and it was printed and we mailed the database books out every week. And so we decided we're going we're gonna to reinvent this product and we're going to give it a new name. So we found this firm up in Sausalito called Lexicon, fascinating company. And they had named, they came up with the name Pentium, Swiffer, Silverlight. These, the linguists at this shop were just amazing. So we hired this firm and said, we've got this analysis tool. We've got this product that people love and Bill designed it and it's going to go online. It's going to have this really cool interface. And we showed them a lot of the, um, you know, the graphics of what MarketSmith looks like today. And they came up with MarketSmith. So those names were the finalists. No way. And, uh, you know, I'm so glad we didn't use Spindle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we'd be saying, welcome to the Spindle podcast. <laughs> we did like Marketrove because you're were, you were kind of on that, like a treasure yeah. trove of information. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah, a little, a little trivia. And it's appropriate that we talk about that because... You and I were just discussing yesterday. Yep. I couldn't believe this, that Market Smith is almost 10 years old. That's right. Next week. It's, uh, it's September it's, September 10th. September 10th. Yeah. It's going to have its 10-year birthday. That is amazing to me. It is amazing. It doesn't yeah. feel like that long ago, too. I know. I know. <laughs> so, you know, it's real. It's And I do appreciate everybody that has subscribed and has given great feedback. Absolutely. Because it was a passion to build it. Um, We've gotten great reviews, and I know people uh, really enjoy using the tool. It's, it's, we, we love it. You know, I think it was, it was my first big project for Bill. And then, I, you know, just to, to carry on and finish up about myself, I've been at the firm for 25 years. So I worked directly under Bill. I moved into managing William O'Neill, uh, recreating Daily Graphs as MarketSmith. And then we embarked on another journey where we recreated this legacy product, uh, it was called Wanda at the time. Now it's called Panaray. We went global. We had a lot more tools, a lot more sophisticated analysis for institutional investors. And then we opened up an operation in India to help us collect our data and do a lot of our technical development. We opened up an operation in China. And just last year, we opened up a new company called O'Neill Global Advisors. And um, that's a very, very exciting. Uh, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about what is O'Neill Global Advisors doing and what kind of strategies we work on, the research that's going on in that organization. Um, but first, another little trivia. Let me see if I can pull it up on my computer. Right. I'm going to look here for an article because we get a lot of questions about the current market. So why don't we talk about that right now? Yeah. And well, then, let, let me uh, – well, first – the current, we're, we're continue to be in a strong market for, for those of you who are, who are new, new to this. Now, it's funny, Steve, we, when you were talking yesterday, we, we were both, we knew it was coming, <laughs> but we were both like, you know, stunned at how strong uh, the port, the, our portfolios are moving, all our kind of stocks were moving, and it was unusual, and, and it was kind of extreme at that point. So some kind of pullback was coming, and of course, right when we were about to record this podcast, it came. Right. I know. So, you know, this is an interesting time. Um, you and I have spoken, Rishi, it's very similar to what happened in 1999. You know, there is this little, there's bubbling going on there. There's a lot of uh, euphoria. Their valuations are stretched. And if any of your listeners are, you know, I'm sure they're browsing the web and they're watching television and they're reading other 
other pieces and it can get very confusing as to, well, what's going to happen and where's this going to go and how, how long does this thing run? So I want to read a piece and won't, this will take about a minute. And um, I, have a, I have a very large library of books. You know, I've been doing this for 40 years. And um, I just stumbled on this. I was looking for something on my computer the other day and I had this PDF of an article from July of 1960. July of 19, before, before when many of your listeners were born. <laughs> and the writer of the article was this gentleman named Burton Crane, who was a great um, business writer for the New York Times. And he wrote, um, he was writing about market excesses in 1960, in the summer of 1960. And um, this is what he says. So in a wry commentary on market excesses, Jack Dreyfus, president of Dreyfus Fund, points to, um, and I'm going to pause here for a minute. Jack Dreyfus, you know the story, Arusha, and some of our listeners probably know this that when Bill O'Neill uh, was trading back in the 1960s, he had this epiphany where the number one fund was the Dreyfus Fund, right? And Bill was a young guy. He was probably the age of many of your listeners. He was in his 20s, um, late 20s probably. And he started thinking, how is this guy doing it? This guy Dreyfus is just killing it with his fund. So he, he got the holdings of the fund and he marked up on these charts, where was Dreyfus buying these stocks? And he had this epiphany where he goes, oh my God, he's buying them at new highs. No one ever does that. Everybody buys the stocks go down. So he had, he realized that Jack Dreyfus was a chartist and he, and he truly was. He was a very technically oriented trader, but he ran his fund. Jack Dreyfus ran his fund with a partner who was a, was a fundamentalist. So they kind of had the best of both worlds. And Jack was born in Alabama. He was a, a, a you know, had a kind of a wry sense of humor. And uh, so I'm going to go on and read what, what Jack was saying about the excesses in 1960. Jack says, he points to a nice little company that's been making shoelaces for 40 years and sells at a respectable six times earnings ratio. Change the name, he advises, from Shoelaces Inc. to Electronic and Silicon Firth Burners. In today's market, the words silicon and electronic are worth 15 times earnings. However, the real play in this stock comes from the word Firth Burners, which no one understands. A word that no one understands entitles you to double your entire score. Therefore, we have six times earnings for the shoelace business and 15 times earnings for electronics and silicon, a total of 21 times earnings. Multiply this by two for Firth Burners, and we now have a score of 42 times earnings for the new company. This is simple. Anyone can do it. Now, be sure, says Mr. Dreyfus, you don't go near a book on security analysis written by Graham and Dodd. These misguided people had the silly notion that you should study securities before you buy them. Graham and Dodd, for your listeners, were the, 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 the authors of a great book on value investing. Exactly. The Bible of value. That's the Bible, true. right? Nope. Dreyfus goes on to say, and listen to this, and think about the parallels. In today's market, studying securities can be fatal. While you're studying them, they're apt to double. And by the time you find you wouldn't have bought them in the first place, they will probably have tripled. 
And that's what happened in 1960. And what's really interesting is um, right after the commentary from uh, Dreyfus, Roy Newberger, who founded Newberger and Berman, many people might know that firm, is quoted, this is not a good time for an investment account to have a dis distorted or very large common stock position at no time in the past, excepting the last year or so, have common stocks been generally as overvalued in relation to earnings, dividends, and business prospects as they are at present. So what's fascinating to me is even 60 years ago, people were wringing their hands about, oh my God, um, everything's overvalued. Dreyfus is making fun of the fact that there's craziness in these markets sometimes and there's human emotion, right? So you fast forward today or, or to 1999, as you and I were talking, right? You had the internet bubble and if you had a dot com at the end of your name, there is immediate premium attached, right? Yep, exactly. Now it's like anybody that's going to benefit from work from home or anyone's going to have, you know, cloud or SaaS. So the, the important, whether you agree or disagree with this is beside the point. The, the thing to take away is that human nature is the same, right? There's enthusiasm, there's emotion, there's optimism that gets dialed into how prices, stocks are priced. And so our job as technicians not as fundamentalists, but as technicians, is to really understand how to read the charts so we can gauge what human psychology is saying about, you know, our disposition to that particular company or that stock. And are we still in love with it? And there's, is there room to grow? And so we'll talk a little bit later about, about um, you know, what we do at O'Neill and how we try to quantify this aspect. Now, Steve, now, now Steve one, one, one thing, though, that uh, you, you find out very quickly when, when you're investing your own money in the markets. And even when you're, if you're learning this strategy and, and trying to learn how to uh, interpret behavior in charts, it gets very, very emotional, right? Oh, and, yes. and you lose your discipline very, very quickly. That's, uh, that, I think that's probably the biggest challenge we all have is the euphoria when you're doing well and then, that, and then the fear of missing out, like, oh, I should have bought more or I thought it was too high and I sold it a month ago. Now what do I do? Yep. And it's that, um, that um, whipsawing of emotion, like you say, that really undoes many, many people. It's also really tri tricky, Arusha, because, um, you know, really understanding and following a rules-based approach. And I know you've talked and people have read uh, investors.com about Bill's concept of follow-through days and distribution days. Well, it takes quite a bit of discipline to just tune out all the contradictory noise and follow those signals. It's true. Right? Yeah. I mean, when you're in a bull market and you're getting distribution and it's really kind of telling you clearly that the market is having trouble going higher and you know, institutions are unloading their names and it's stalling and it, we don't know if it's going to plunge. It's not, we're not trying to forecast the magnitude, but we are picking up that there's a change in character. Yep. Right. You well, I mean, Fe I think February is a perfect example of that. Right. We didn't know exactly. I mean, we knew that yeah, that that uh, the coronavirus is out there and China had it, uh, but we didn't know how bad or how bad it could get. Right. But we were interpreting the market. Right. And so, so interpreting it day by day, week by week, helps you to put aside your prognostications and your opinions and just say it is what it is. Right. You know, we're getting this distribution, and I don't know. And then you'll you'll like you know you'll respond in kind by reducing your your exposure to equities. 
And so one of the things, to, to your point about the emotions, one of the things that we found um, with, with, with market timing, you know, your exposure to equities and with individual stock selection is you really often need a rules-based approach to overcome that human emotion. Um, and so I was going to mention at O'Neill Global Advisors, one of the interesting things that we've done uh, to really uh, extend Bill's legacy is we've used quantitative systematic analysis to come up with strategies that can implement things like the follow through and distribution concepts. And as a matter of fact, I was going to mention, Arusha, we have a, we, we designed this strategy that is a market timing strategy. And it is simply going long the market, going short the market, or if it gets chopped out, chopped up because of false positives, it sits on the sidelines. Very similar to what we might do as discretionary traders if we were, exactly. you know, trying to trade the major trends. So Steve, let's hold hold up there. Let's just take a quick break and then we'll return. We'll talk more about this strategy. And so the market is in an uptrend, a a pretty strong uptrend, but we could have some time off here. Some stocks have gone a little overheated and they may pull back. So just make sure you're disciplined. But when we return, we're going to talk about these strategies. So we'll be back. I am here with Scott St. Clair. Scott's one of our senior product coaches at MarketSmith. Now, Scott, there are a ton of publicly traded stocks just on the U.S. I think it's over 5,000 stocks. Who has the time to go through all of these stocks and find the very best ones? Yeah, most people don't, right? So what you need is a tool like MarketSmith. We have decades of research on what makes a great winning stock. So we've done all the research for you. So we're going to try to highlight those specific stocks with those great data points. So if you're looking for that next great potential big winner, orange stock ideas button, you just click on it and you've got some of the main reports that we use, including the Growth 250. Yeah, and the Growth 250 is the first list that I go through on the weekends. Yeah, it's the most popular one, but there are others. There's the Breaking Out Today, Stocks Near a Pivot, and then the Blue Dot List, right, which is very popular. It's going to show you the stocks with the best relative strength. So we've done a lot of the work for you. What you have to do is review these lists. You're going to come up with some of the best ideas in that current market environment. Perfect. Mark Smith saves you time and makes investment research that much easier. For more information, go to Investors.com slash podcast 2020. Steve Birch is our guest on Investing with IBD, sponsored by MarketSmith. Okay, Steve, let's continue this conversation uh, about the new quantitative strategies uh, from O'Neill Global Advisors. And so you mentioned that Bill was a discretionary manager. And so why did you go more towards this systematized approach? Well, you if anyone's read or met Bill or been to the workshops, he's, he's often said, you need to have rules, right? You need to have rules. And, and we've always believed in that. And it's to address the emotion that comes into play. And so it's, it's really hard to find another Bill O'Neill. I, I've worked as the CIO of the family office, the chief investment officer, and I oversee many discretionary traders. And Scott O'Neill and I had a long conversation about, and you know, where do, we, where do we take our asset management, the internal running of the money? Do we try to go find another Bill O'Neill that might be out there, might not be out there? We have to, it's gonna be very hard you have this key man risk with just one individual like Bill. And we had a stable of, 
of, of people, but our business has changed, right? It's, we have, we're involved in many, many ventures across the world. And so our risk profile has changed. So we thought, well, why don't we look at, we've got a great database, big data warehouse. There's this trend towards quantitative analysis, machine learning, uh, data science, and we need that across all of our businesses. So we said, let's build that out. So about five years ago, we started a quantitative group within the firm to do research and to really understand many of these and document all the things that we teach and talk about. For instance, relative strength rank. And as a matter of fact, I think, Arusha, you can probably pull this up on your computer. If you look at our website, O'Neill Global Advisors, we have a tab there that allows people free of charge to go read our research. And you could show, you could open that up and under, we have a report that came out recently called RS rating. It's all relative. Now, anybody can go to this site, O'NeillGlobalAdvisors.com and read this report. And it's very, very thorough. Um, it's very rigorous. It's very statistical. It's intended audience is someone in the institutional or quantitative space that's really trying to understand how to apply some of our proprietary ratings and rankings and have we back tested them? Have we seen that there really is alpha if you use this in your, as a factor in your process? Right. And so we have an article on relative strength. We have it on new highs. We have one on uh, EPS rank. And that, that team of data scientists and, um, and analysts is going to continually produce these research reports. But so anyone can go and... Any, anybody so just can, go to O'NeillGlobalAdvisors.com under research, and these are free for anybody if they want to check out. Yeah, I think you... Because that, that would be interesting, especially for, for our customers. We, we're always preaching about RS rating. Now, here, here is a, a, a paper, a white paper right. on this, or even new highs. We always talk about new highs, so, right. so that's uh, really good. And you'll see we do a lot of our work across the world. We, we study the same phenomena in China, in India, because we have offices there, and we have we have customers there, uh, and we really are trying to formalize and understand these factors that drive returns. Now, a natural outgrowth, if you, if you have all these discoveries, why are we not investing? And we are. And so this year, we decided to build some strategies, and there, one's called Chameleon, one's called Raven, another one's called Timberwolf. And as I mentioned, Chameleon is a market timing strategy that uses the follow-through day and distribution concepts. Um, uh, Raven is a strategy that is very, very similar to what a traditional CanSlim user would use. You know, we're, it's very bottom-up, stock-picking centric. It combines your RS, your EPS, your accumulation distribution with technical breakouts mm -hmm. of certain patterns. But, it, but what it does is it actually hedges Arusha. So it'll take short positions in stocks that are technically weak, with really That's poor ratings, you know? So yeah. we really are, we're really raising the game in term of, terms of the sophistication of how we apply our research by building real trading strategies around the research. And then we have another one, um, um, you and I were discussing this one the other day, some of your listeners might be familiar with earning stability. Right. That's, a, that's a measurement of um, how, how um, stable or variable are the earnings quarter to quarter. So a firm like Procter & Gamble or Visa is gonna have a very low earnings stability number in MarketSmith. And they're very consistent and they're tried and true and hopefully their earnings are growing. You'll have another firm that's maybe a young upstart where it's going from no earnings to positive earnings or maybe they're kind of cyclical and they'll have lots of variability in their earnings. 
we discovered in some of this quantitative research that there really is a relationship between stocks with high earnings variability and high earnings stability. And then you can, you can hedge those two universes and you can extract some alpha by, by running a hedge portfolio between those. We also incorporate some other proprietary factors to build those portfolios. So that's our Timberwolf strategy. So it's really fascinating stuff. I would encourage people that want to learn more to, to hit the website, read the research. You can send us a request for, um, uh, for information about these, uh, these strategies in our research, and we can be more than happy to respond. We have a large team to Arusha. People don't realize, uh, we just did a count the other day. We have about 55 people working across the globe on quantitative strategies in some form or fashion. Yeah, we- That's a lot bigger than than I realized. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, we have data scientists, quant analysts, BSAs in Shanghai, in Bangalore, in Mumbai, and here in in Los Angeles, all working on a variety of strategies for those markets. So so let's talk about, let's let's jump back and talk about, um, because I know everyone's curious on, current environment, stocks, things that are working, that are not working, and, and maybe a learning lesson or two from, and, I, and you know me, I can go ramble for, you know, oh, no, no, but 20, 30, 40 ramble. minutes. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> keep, me on, keep me on track here. Um, yeah, so, well, well, let me ask you this question. With, uh, so obviously this market is, is very, very unusual, and, and it's so strong. Uh, we we we've mentioned the '99 market. Is there any other kind of market out there uh, that reminds you of this market that that listeners can go and, and study and and uh, maybe get some other stocks to to see how they behave in that, those type of environments? Yeah, the two the two periods that I can relate to are the the, the go-go years of the 1960s, and Bill wrote about this, and he made really his his first fortune there in the early 60s 60s in syntax. And Syntax is a great example. You know, he often talks about that. This, for those that don't know the story, I won't go into the whole story, but Syntax was the, was uh, uh, offered the first birth control pill that was widely adopted. Not the first, they were actually the second. Oh, wow. It's kind of fascinating. You know, yeah. you know, a lot of times you think, uh, you know, oh, Apple was the first or, right. well, not really. You know, Sony came out with the Walkman, but Apple came yeah. out with the iPod, right? right? So a lot of these great innovators are not necessarily the first, you know, MySpace, Facebook. That's true. Right. right. Um, always remember that. Right. So no, but the, the, the periods that are of interest to me, are, there was a period in the, in the mid 60s, 63 to 67, which they call the go-go years. And the go-go years was where every growth name and as Jack Dreyfus was, was alluding in 1960, anything that had some, you know, fancy new name that was sort of hot and, and, and sexy was moving and, and attracting Lots of capital and expanding multiples were seen all over the, the market. Um, Bill had a fund in 67 that was up like 118% or 120%. He had like the number one performing fund in that year. In 99, it was kind of the same thing. And, and what, I, what we're discussing, you and I talk about this and with some of the other um, people at the firm, you know, in 99, we had this endpoint uh, of Y2K. And everyone thought that the, world was going to stop. Everything was on mainframes. They weren't coded for four digits. Right. Um, even at O'Neill, we were worried about that because we had a mainframe yeah. <laughs> generating all of our, our data and our charts. And so that, that coupled with the fact that the internet was still kind of young 
and you had all this growth going on in the internet. You had the Cisco's, you had, um, you know, the Qualcomm's, you had, you had, you had um, Yahoo that was an AOL, you know, That's right. clearly there was demand. And I'll say this, here, here's some of the things that, 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 that I see going on. When a, when a company like Zoom pulls their numbers forward that quickly, where they, you know, I think on Zoom, the, the highest quarterly estimate on the street was maybe 52 cents. They come in at almost double, almost double that, like 90, 92, 95, whatever it was. When you, get, when you get those kind of massive surprises because of demand, you typically have some secular wind at your back where there's something going on that you need to take a, you got to step outside and say, well, what really is fundamentally changing here that I'm not aware of? And we've talked often about, you know, the internet phenomenon when there was a, a world without the internet that your listeners probably won't believe, but there was. <laughs> and there was a world without, you know, the PC that was, and there was a world prior to the semiconductor. And Bill played Fairchild Semi, you know, the ones that yeah. really were making the first transistor. And, and so in hindsight, it's so easy to go, oh, yeah, that's, that must have been the transition and turning point. Right. But when you're in the middle of it all, it's really hard to know whether it's truly secular or not. But um, oftentimes you'll see it in a company's earnings where you're just absolutely shocked that they're able to generate those kind of sales numbers and they're pulling them forward, meaning they're making this quarter what we thought they were going to make a year, a, com a year out. They're just, it's just really, really accelerating. So I see some parallels there. Uh, you know, Zoom is just one instance. It really remains to be seen whether we're going to have a continuation of this work from home, but it is an interesting phenomenon. And it reminds me of some of the changes that, that we've documented, the cell phone, the internet, the PC, um, you know, airline travel. Bill, Bill wrote about a lot of this, these sort right. of secular growth phenomenons that we can all play. Um, but let me, I, you and I mentioned, you know, we talk about 99 for people to study. I was trading in 99. I had an account in 99. It was a, it was probably the best year percent wise that we've ever had in the firm. Um, we used a lot of leverage and a lot of concentration to really, really parlay those gains. And so one of the bits of advice, and you and I have talked about this quite a bit, is the takeaway from 99 is to study climax tops. Right. You know, you really want to think about, well, what's a climax top? Well, Bill wrote about that and IBD has a lot of good information on what are the telltale signs of a stock going through climatic buying, right? And I don't, I don't have, you don't have to go into all of it, but there are easily uh, measurable factors you can look at, how high they get above their 200 day, what stage base this is, um, you know, the largest, widest weekly bar or daily bar and so on. And you guys right. can build a, a little checklist of like, okay, if this happens, it might be going through a climax. Now, what was interesting in 99, it wasn't just one stock. I mean, we had many, many stocks that were doing this crazy euphoric climatic action. And if you teach yourself how to recognize that, you can apply that rule and ignore all the opinions and all the emotion and really try to book some of this on the way up rather than selling it after these stocks have peaked and now they've corrected. Because psychologically, I mean, it's, it's a different psychological challenge selling into a climax right. because you're, right. you're thinking, oh, you know, maybe I'll hold on to half the position or I'll, you know, I'll just sell 10%. I still, I'm going to, 
you know, as an example, I've heard people say, I'll never sell Tesla. <laughs> and I and I have to remind them, you know, there are a bunch of people that said they would never sell BlackBerry. Yeah, exactly. Or Nokia. Yep. Or Motorola. Or Blockbuster. Or Blockbuster. <laughs> so, and, and you and I were chatting about this the other day, um, Bill made a lot of money in Syntex. Now, here you are, you know, here you are in the 1960s with this birth control pill and the sexual revolution and, you know, all no one really had anything like this and there was huge demand for this and you think oh my god that must have been a secular winner right well that stock went up so fast in six months that it did peak and even though there was huge demand it had a very very stretched valuation and it corrected about 70 percent it sold off you know um because well why does that happen because people get a little too excited you know they really are dialing in unsustainable growth expectations and so the other thing that i that that i've been talking to some of the pms about as we try to gauge like where are we on this cycle compared to 99 and we did this in 99 and bill did this with syntax was we went through our models and we looked at not just well how high did it go you know it went up x percent um some go up thousands of percent go up, some go up two, 300%. We really looked at the multiples that they had at the beginning of their move, at the end of the move, and we tried to use that as a gauge of investor euphoria. So we call this multiple expansion, the PE. So the PE was 50 when it broke out, and then we measured at the very, very peak. Well, what was the PE when it finally topped out? And we go, oh, the PE was, you know, 120. It went from 50 to 120, more than doubled. Um, and then we just kind of take that as a guide and we try to measure current environment to say, well, are we, are we seeing all these multiples expand beyond historical ranges? And if they are, maybe we're in a, a topping environment. And I'll tell you, you know, people are gonna say, well, are we? I go, well, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. The, our models would indicate that there's still room for names like Nvidia, Tesla, believe it or not, there's right. still room for stocks like Zoom. And you know, how can that be the highest price? The highest price target on the street is this, and they just got downgraded. And all I can say is in 1999, those stocks blew through every analyst price target until it got to the point where the analysts just gave up and they started giving out crazy price targets, right? Absolutely crazy ones where they go, it doesn't, my DCF models, my dividend discount models don't make any sense. I'm just going to pick a number because this market <laughs> only wants ridiculous price targets, right? Yep. And that's, that all kind of clustered around when things were ending. Yep. The other thing, the other, the last thing to pay, so you, you want to think about climax tops, you want to think about, um, um, you know, multiple expansions. And the last is you want to think about stock splits. And so, you know, I have a list here. Uh, from our 1998-99 model book study. And there were, there were a good 30 some odd names that many people will, will probably recognize that had massive runs in 1999. Yahoo, Amazon, AOL, Nokia, eBay, Schwab, Sun Microsystems, Cisco, um, Emulux, Qualcomm, Adobe, Checkpoint, Siebel, um, uh, business objects, Oracle, Monster, NTAP, Cree. You guys, some of these people know. Now, what's there's a couple interesting things here. Which one of these, Arusha, do you think split five times? 
split five times during the 98-99 period. Well, I, I would think Yahoo would have been one. You are dead right. It was Yahoo. Okay, okay. Now, people are like, are you kidding me? It split five times? I'm like, yep, it split five That's times. incredible. I thought it was like four or five times. Over like a two-year two year run, two-year yeah. period. <laughs> now, that gives you an idea of how, I mean, somebody made the comment to me the other day, like, well, you know, I just can't see, I can't see this stock doubling again, you know, just because it split. And, and I said, you should have seen the numbers, some of these internet companies were printing in 99 in terms of top line. Now, remember, this right. is the other interesting thing. Right. Nobody cared about earnings in 99. Yep. It was a really weird time. They were so euphoric about the internet and this whole new thing called the internet and how it was going to change the world, right? And we didn't need earnings. All we needed was customers that wanted our products. So all you cared about was top line growth, right? right. right. And so they would throw caution to the wind and, and every value guy, I think even Buffett was like, I can't figure this out, right? People that are, that are using valuations to the quote I just did earlier on, you know, Dreyfus, you know, used in his article, mm-hmm. you're, by the time you figure out you never would have bought it in the first place, it's probably tripled. Right? Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and that's all because of, you know, just we're humans. We get excited about these entrepreneurs and these innovators. But yes, Yahoo was split uh, that many times. Um, we had Qualcomm did a two for one and then did a four for one. That had, that had a big, right, yeah. a lot, lots yep. of splits. Nokia did three splits, a two-for-one, a two-for-one, and a four-for-one, right? Um, and there was this sort of, um, you know, this interesting clustering. And Bill had documented this. It wasn't just in 99. He had seen this happen also like in the go-go years and other times where, and, and to be clear, if, you're, if your audience doesn't really understand the, what a split is for, why we do it, it really doesn't have any purpose other than to bring the price down and the person that enjoys having a lower price is typically the retail public because they have an anchoring bias on price. Right. And, and I can't tell you the number of people that say, I can't buy this stock because it's over $1,000 a share. It's too expensive. That does not matter. What's interesting too, Arusha, is <clears throat> I don't know if, there, if splitting really is going to be as pervasive as some people say. I know Jim Cramer's been advocating that more stocks should split. But, you know, with... with uh, Platforms like Robinhood and, and Fidelity and others that do fractional uh, exactly. buying, yeah. the need to split, I think, is going to diminish. But an older generation of traders would really have this anchoring bias, and they'd say, I, can, I always have to buy 100 shares, and a $1,000 stock at 100 shares is, I can't afford that. You know, and they'd always have these objections. Yeah. Um, so, so companies would, it's an accounting function. You double the number of shares, you cut the stock price in half the very next day. The market cap hasn't changed one bit. All you've done is distribute more shares and you've lowered the price. But the retail public is like, oh, it's cheap. I can come in there and buy. And there's all this sort of, yeah, this crazy demand. Yep. So Steve, let's take another quick break here. Uh, So remember having a system and a set of rules will help you manage the emotions in the market. So climax tops and splits can give you that indication that maybe your stock is getting a little overheated and you might want to uh, manage your risk. Coming up next, we will discuss a few ideas. Stay tuned.
MarketSmith will give you a huge edge in the stock market. Better stocks, bigger profits. MarketSmith is the top research platform for IBD. It's just the best tool for individual stock selection. Everything within MarketSmith is designed to bring those best stocks to the surface. It does a lot of the work for you of filtering down to the potential leaders. It's when you take the training wheels off and you're ready to invest on a more professional level. MarketSmith will help you take control of your investment life. If you want to get serious about investing, start your membership today. We are back with Steve Birch on investing with IBD, sponsored by MarketSmith. Okay, Steve, now we've talked about Climax Tops. We've talked about splits. Uh, Let's get into some stocks that have been doing well uh, so far this year and uh, really well. Uh, And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull up my MarketSmith charts. And, you know, we we, we spoke about it already. Let's, Let's pull up Tesla right here so everyone can take a look at it. And uh, you can see here on the, the weekly chart, the amazing run that it really started back in 2019, uh, at the end of 2019. And then you had the pandemic kind of correct and, and cause it to fall off. And now it's just on a, another uh, rocket ship uh, all the way up to 500 after the four for one split. Right. <clears throat> right. No, you know, the, the I guess everyone's going to think of this name differently. If you bought it down there when it was, you know, $50 and you got a $500 stock, uh, you're, you're, you're wondering how high can it go and should I take my profit? If you bought it recently, you're worried about how much can it correct. Right. You know, the moving averages are, 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 are great tools to help you answer that simple question. What is the trend of the stock? Is it still in an uptrend? It still is. Now, we know the valuation is stretched. We know that people are at, attaching a lot of high expectations on their ability to deliver. But, you know, Bill would often talk about this. Stocks have a high valuation for a reason. It's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. It's a reflection of our, of our euphoria and our, 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 our confidence in the management. You know, if, if you have a stock that's uh, trading at a three multiple, actually Scott O'Neill and I were discussing one today <laughs> and, uh, and, and we were worried this company was going to go bankrupt because we were just happened to be looking at it as a name that we, we had, we were familiar with. And Bill would say, well, there's a reason it's trading at a three multiple. It's not because it's cheap and you should buy it. It's because they're running into management problems. Their, their market's changed. It's been disrupted. They're, they're all kind of, you, and you can see it in the earnings, right? Yeah. So with yeah. a name like Tesla, we're never, you know, and Bill would say, I don't really look at valuation and let that influence whether I should sell it or buy it. That's not part of our process. Our process is, well, does it have all those telltale characteristics? You can see it in the earnings, right? Yep. Um, does it have the, uh, uh, the management? Does it have the innovative product? Yes, yes, and yes. Um, a lot of this is going to be back to the chart where you say, well, if I was a current owner, what would it have to do for me to bail and get out of this? Well, it's going to probably correct they all do. It's gone through its own corrections. There's going to be a volatile period. Well, what can I expect from a correction? I go back on our empirical studies because we've looked at thousands of great model book stocks and we know what a typical normal correction looks like and we know what an abnormal correction looks like. And so that's when your chart reading skills come into play. So, um, and I don't know, no one knows, no one on listening to this call knows where Tesla is going to be in one week, in one month, in six months. No one knows. 
That's why we just interpret and we right. score it every day. And right now, Tesla is fine. It is still bullish. It is still in an uptrend. Is there a secondary buy point? No, I would not buy it here. Would you sell it here if I, you owned it? No, I would not sell it here. What are we waiting for? We're watching to see how it behaves after this run-up. It just broke out. It just went through a big split. Now we want to see, when I say it behaves, you've got buyers and sellers that are voting every day with their shares. And that gets painted as a bar on the chart. Now, a strong name should hold trend, should consolidate. It can wiggle around and go up or down 5%, 10%. It won't, there's nothing wrong. A weak name will start seeing distribution. We'll start seeing people going, you know, maybe I'm not as bullish. Maybe I should just get out, right? Yeah. So it's a really interesting time where you really do have to read the tape on Tesla and ask that hard question. Was the behavior of the stock today abnormal? Does it look like distribution? Does it look like maybe people are giving up on it? They're, be, they're less bullish. I don't know what the reasons are. Maybe there's something in the ether, then they're not. Maybe it's regulatory. Maybe there's a competitor. Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's acting so resilient. The RS line just won't break. It doesn't seem to ever, it, it sells off in the morning and then it rallies back in the afternoon, you know, and you have all these little signals and you're thinking, maybe there's something else out there that people are still really excited about that management has. They've got this edge. They've got, you know, and that's what makes it so interesting to be a technician because as you read the chart, the chart's going to be your first leading indicator of what potentially is going to come out later, right? And then usually the fundamentals will come out a little bit later and they'll confirm what you're seeing in the chart. So right now, no Tesla, uh, full disclosure, I own it. I've owned it for a, for a while. I never, I didn't buy it down at 50. Um, but it I do has, want it too. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and um, it's a, it's a, it's a great fundamental growth story that fits within that profile of many of our models where you had a new CEO, you have an innovative CEO, a dynamic one like Steve Jobs was, you have Elon Musk, they, they're evangelists, they're visionaries, they produce a great product, they have a loyal customer base. And, you know, he has to execute and deliver. And we're going to measure that not by just reading articles about Musk and about Tesla. We're going to measure it every time they release their earnings. Yeah. Because and Steve, you know, you know, it was funny because I actually just brought up uh, the point. This was probably a few years, uh, a few months ago when we were in the pandemic in March. A number of us were talking about stocks and we were talking about the concept of cancel and what stocks fit that. And you asked that question to a, a few of us. And and I think I said Dexcom, but one person said Tesla. Right. And in the end, you know, when you think of from a larger concept, Tesla always kind of fits that because the, the Elon Musk is kind of thinking outside the box. They're changing the world in many ways. And so when the stock gets going, take it very seriously. Yeah, I mean, these are, these are in hindsight, when we study our models, they look so easy. In the middle of the battle, you do have to understand what are they doing that's creating that competitive moat? What are they doing to change the world? This, and that's a big book name, you know, that's really changing the world. It's coming out with a, with a better, you know, music device like the iPod. They don't have to be the first mover. They don't. We've seen that happen where, I mean, there have been other electric car companies prior to Tesla, right? right the EV1 right. and others. It's on execution. It's on vision. It's on design. So they get an audience that loves their product and that really believes in their product. 
And then it's their ability to parlay that. And you can take that outside the U.S. and do it in, in China. And so there's, there's just so many fascinating, fascinating stories. Now, many people would say, well, I can't model that. There's no, I can't, there's no future cash flow to model what they might do. Well, the market models that by attaching a large, rich multiple, right? We're, we're discounting that already. So the debate is over like, well, is the discount, you know, are we, are we really fully discounting it? Or do they have other things they're working on? And a lot of this is a bet on the vision of management and their ability to deliver. Now, <clears throat> what's interesting is even with a company like Apple, because I own that, I, I was one of my big winners uh, in the, you know, when Back Apple, in 2004, 2005. Yeah, that, yeah. And, yep. and Bill and I would have a lot of discussion over um, when Apple would go through these corrections, right? He was always worried that that might be the end because, you know, syntax went down 70%. Yeah, and yeah. I would debate with him on the fundamentals and why Apple was unique and why they were changing the world in a certain way and their loyal customer base. And he'd listen but he would always go back and say, well, they've got to be able to hold their earnings. They've got the chart needs to do this. And if it doesn't, then you're probably wrong. Yep. And so you then, you know, he would challenge me on don't get too stubborn, be flexible. I would challenge him on don't think every correction is going to turn into a wipeout, right? Yeah. And that's yeah. where it gets really interesting. So yeah, the Tesla owners that, that, um, that, suffer through the, the inevitable correction are going to be challenged. They're going to have to really think about, is the correction showing me technical signs that maybe there's something out there on the horizon I need to be worried about? And that's why you just become nimble and you, you, you can't marry yourself to a position. You remember the Nokias, you remember the Blackberries, and you, you trim. You trim a little bit. You take some off, and then you add back a little bit later. Yeah, and I, I think the, the the nice thing is when, when you have one of these stocks that has all that potential, uh, you let the let the chart tell you when to get in and when to get out of the stock, and and a lot of times that makes it easy, and, and then you don't have to debate as much because the chart's going to tell you, like you said, Steve, when these institutions finally uh, figure out that hey, you know, this company is not going to grow out this ridiculous multiple anymore. They're not going to be able to meet those expectations. You're going to see it on the chart. You're going to see right. the, the selling over a number of months, and so uh, a number of these funds are trying to sneak out of it. Right. So uh, th there's there's one idea that we had only had the time to go over. Uh, <laughs> that's worth you know keeping an eye on. So thanks, Steve, for joining us today. I know you have to to run to another meeting. I do. Thanks, Arusha. We'll we'll do it again. Next week, we are going to have Brian Shannon on the show. Brian is a longtime trader and also the founder of alphatrends.net. So that's it for this week on Investing with IBD. I'm Arusha Paris, and thanks for listening. And for this week's Nilton Charts, make sure to go to investors.com slash podcast, where you'll find details for each episode in the podcast episode section. And make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.